Welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of meeting culture and uncovering cures for the common meeting. Some meetings have tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly magical meeting. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join us live for a session sometime, you can join our weekly Control the Room Facilitation Lab. It's a free event to meet fellow facilitators and explore new techniques, so you can apply the things you learn in the podcast in real time with other facilitators. Sign up today at voltagecontrol.com facilitation lab. If you'd like to learn more about my new book, Magical Meetings, you can download the Magical Meetings Quick Start Guide, a free PDF reference with some of the most important pieces of advice from the book. Download a copy today at voltagecontrol.com slash magical dash meetings dash quick dash guide. Today, I'm with Sparks, a software engineering leader and co-host of Space Pencils, a community focused on developing leadership skills, including a Discord community, live stream, and video podcast all focused on leadership development. Welcome to the show, Sparks. <laughs> Thanks, Douglas. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. So let's start off with learning a bit about how you got your start. How did you get into leadership development? Sure. So I have been mainly with uh, working on cell phone technology back when phones were just for talking. And I had a long career in developing some really cool things like uh, working with like Shazam and Music ID, the first video streaming app store, a lot of like kind of cutting edge stuff. Um, eventually, I ended up getting to a place where I had a school, both for iOS and Android development. And I learned that everything I knew about learning was wrong. And we were a great school, but a terrible business. And so from there, I ended up moving on. And now I help uh, I help people take vacation for a living at my current job. So my journey has been one from being one who had to be led to being out on my own to then eventually working with larger, larger groups. And I think that there's some things I've learned along the way because of, I have such a kind of diverse background of experiences that I have. I'm really curious about your comment about how everything you knew about learning was wrong. So I'd love to unpack that and then also stitch back to how these learnings, these understandings about learning have allowed you to become a better leader. Sure. So when I was first asked to teach at the school, I was asked by somebody who was actually a learning scientist. And what I found myself doing, having not really ever taught any formal setting before, was I was I was copying bad behaviors from teachers that I saw or YouTube videos or just, you know, instructional material. It was just like the first thing to do, right? Like you're kind of like a, oh, if I'm going to do this, then I'll do how I've seen it done. And that's where uh, this learning scientist friend of mine was like, no, 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 we're, we're here to actually help people learn. And, and what you're doing is not accomplishing that goal. And I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> well, what do I need to do differently? And a lot of it had to do with, I think like, the biggest insight I had was uh, trying to understand where people are starting from. Because we all go through like the same like learning loop. And most people want to start at the beginning. And that's actually terrible, right? Like if you want to learn how to do something and you use a YouTube video, right? Maybe it's a 30-minute long video, but you just want to watch minute 16 to 17. That's the one gap that you have in order to accomplish a task. In fact, that's another thing that we don't have with learning is like a lot of times people don't have an actual learning objective that they're going after, right? They have 
like, oh, you need to understand everything about iOS development. It's like, <laughs> maybe not. Maybe, maybe what you need to do is tell me what it is that you're working on. What is it you're trying to accomplish? What are you trying to build right now? And then you can kind of tailor and find the right material that you need in order to accomplish that goal. The other part that I learned that was kind of funny was, uh, you know, they, they have all these scalability problems with how you can scale out curriculum and scale out development. But when it comes down to it, it turns out that the apprenticeship model apparently is the superior model. It just does, has all these scaling problems. But actually, like learning by being with an expert and learning how they think and why they think is, is super important, but not necessarily an expert who's the best. We all want to learn from the best, right? But actually, that's terrible. An expert doesn't know what like a beginner, like they, they, they're just doing it for so long, they don't know what it's like to not know it. And a beginner doesn't know what questions to ask. And so actually, the best ways that you can learn are from people who just learned it. And we see this sometimes, right, where you see, you know, maybe an assistant teaching a student as opposed to the, you know, master or, or whatnot. But actually scaffolding your, your learning and putting yourself in environments where you're learning from someone who just learned something is the fastest way you can basically learn things in the, in the modern world. Also, if you want to take like intermediate knowledge and make it really advanced, teaching it to someone else is a great way to do that, right? Because they're going to ask questions and help you understand the gaps in your knowledge. So for sure, these programs where people want to go deeper and you, you know, a lot, I think a lot of programs call them fellowship programs are really powerful. Yeah. Well, so I feel like what I learned was that like, what we're doing right is kind of sprinkled throughout all the different ways we're trying to do it as human beings. And so somebody mm. connecting the dots for me and being like, that's pretty good. That's not as good. I don't know. Like for you, what is like the, what is your go-to method to, to learn something? And has, and how much has it changed since you were maybe like younger and then we're in school? You know, I think it's been the same all my life, which is the best way for me to learn something is to do it. Especially if I've got someone nearby that can help me understand how poorly I'm doing it. So if someone can observe me doing it and saying, like, for instance, a golf swing is a perfect example. You can, I'm not a golfer, but I know enough about golf to know that, like, you can watch all the videos you want, get all the training you want. But until someone watches you and breaks down your issues and helps you get to that reflection moment, you're not going to be able to make those improvements. And so that's my, to me, it's always like, I mean, sure, you got to read and you got to understand theory, but nothing's going to practice makes practice. Totally. And actually, there's a there's like a, a, a description, I believe, about that problem that you're talking about. And what you're doing is you're breaking the learning loop, right? So what you're doing is you're going from like, I have a question of what to do. I'm going to simulate that by reading about it. And you're not going through the feedback cycle of like, you know, you're just going simulation back to question, simulation back to question. And like, yeah, you can't read a you can't read a book about how to throw a baseball and then know how to throw a baseball. I mean, you have to start throwing a baseball, right? Yeah, Nick, so take the baseball analogy and tie it back to your comment about the experts. So often when they ask, you know, someone who is a home run hitter, how they hit a home run, they're always like, don't take my eye off the ball. But if you use a high speed camera, it's like they totally aren't looking at the ball a lot of times. <laughs> and so this is a great book on this, man. Have you heard of The Inner Game of Tennis? Really great read talking about exactly what we're discussing. And he was basically a tennis coach for many years. And he started to realize that the best way to coach was to have folks do things until they could basically remove the inner critic. Because if you're constantly thinking about how you do the thing and trying to apply logic to how you... <laughs> 
you make the move, you're not going to be good at it, right? And so how do they find those moments of intuition or where it becomes muscle memory and it's just, you've got the flow, so to speak. So how, how do you, so, how do you under this philosophy deal with uh, that feedback? You're saying like, you want to remove the critic. I think I'm missing something. You want to remove the critic. Yeah. But the thing is, is how can you feel it? Right. So the feedback is training the muscle memory so that you know how to recognize it. So instead of saying like, I need to do a, B and C instead of me coaching you saying, you put your hip here, move this left spin like this turn 10 degrees. It's like you do it. And, and, and the, and the, and the, basically the coach is the feedback saying, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. Until you're like, Oh, I just need to, like, I don't even know how to describe it, but I got it. Yeah. So, so I have, a, I have another one that's really great with this. So I, it took me about, so I learned how to, how to drive stick at an early age. And the way my dad taught me was terrible. And it took me about 20 years to finally realize how you should actually teach people stick now that we're all going to be in, you know, automated cars, it's, I guess it's really irrelevant. But I actually realized that the way to teach people how to drive stick is to treat it like you're trying to teach someone how to kiss. Like you need to just, first of all, stall the car, feel what it's like for things to feel bad. You don't need to explain to them how a clutch works. You don't need to explain to them what first or second gear is. Just, do you feel this? This, this is when the car is unhappy. Okay. Now here are like some things you can do that'll feel differently. Right. And it's eventually like the actual act of driving stick. You don't need to know how it works at all. Right. It's like a very, like, this is, I need to, I need to let off the gas and you give more gas. I, you know, all that kind of part uh, of the, the feedback loop, but it's a feel thing. It's, it's not something that you can describe and explain and then have it be like, Oh yeah, now I know how to drive stick. You know, it's funny that resonates on many levels, right? Because so often we are working at an abstraction boundary and yet folks that understand the deeper levels want to explain those lower levels and the abstraction boundary was put in place for a reason <laughs> right like because so we don't want to worry about those things right and so if we're teaching stuff below the boundary like we're kind of doing a disservice to the abstraction boundary because I, I like this idea this abstraction boundary because um this is something that even though i know that it's wrong i still fight and actually, you're giving me like a model of like where I need to pay attention because I still want to tell you how a clutch works. I, I can't remove it. Mm. I don't know why, right? And maybe it's because I really appreciate how a clutch works. I know that it's ineffective, but there's still like a desire uh, to, to explain all this beautiful stuff you can see past the abstraction boundary. But like it's, it's yeah, it's not, it's not helpful to the person learning. Well, and also I think if we can drive them to that level of passion where then they start asking, right? then we can share that stuff because now they've already mastered that layer and now they're curious about diving lower. But to your point, if we drive too early, it's just cognitive load and they, they miss out on learning the feel, learning how to manage that abstraction or, or live in that layer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And by the way, this I see this all the time in software where one of the things that I try to help my engineers do is... I tell them that you want to understand like one above and one below, right? So like mm. if you are, let's say you're writing like an API where you're you know sending code over the network, like you should probably understand like what is, what is that code eventually going to be looking like? And maybe you want to know like what the protocol layer is below it. You don't need to know hardware. You, you, don't know to be, you don't need to become a firmware engineer. That's way, way too irrelevant at that level of abstraction, right? Although maybe not so nowadays because there's a lot of security implications with how that stuff works. But like, if you're a UI person, know a bit of design. You know? Know, know a little bit about how the servers work. But finding like, that, that tunage where you're just curious enough, I think, is really helpful. Because like, knowing one abstraction layer 
above or below, uh, you know, really does help you understand the thing that you thought you understood, right? Because now you're seeing like a little bit more. Uh, it's just like you can't, like you said, there's a cognitive load. You can't do it all at once. You know, it kind of makes me think about some of the skills that are required to be great facilitators. And, you know, one of them is the linking and connecting that's needed to help people understand each other and to get to good alignment. And that's why, it's, to your point, it's important to be one above, one below, or one left or one right. What are these boundaries that exist near and around you? And if you can pierce those enough to where you can communicate with people that are living in those other spaces, it's going to make you a better teammate, a better collaborator. And if you can hone that skill of piercing the boundary, you may find that you can pierce new ones with ease just because you built that strength of being able to like question and get curious about things that you don't understand or things are that on the edges of what you know so that you don't have to have studied it for months and you can just kind of get there and be in the conversation and that exploration. So, so with facilitation, I now, now I'm curious, is it, is the, is the actual thing that you're talking about that's valuable, not having, not like, okay, how, man, how do we talk about abstraction in the abstract? It's not, it's not this knowledge. It's not the knowledge on the other side. It's the process of piercing that. And, and, and that is, is that the repeatable thing in facilitation where it's like, once you get good at piercing, you can apply piercing to, to many more things. Yeah. I think it's the linking, right? If I can hear two people saying the same thing, but meaning different things or saying different things, but meaning the same thing, Mm -hmm. then I can link those or unlink (laughs) them and help people get to those moments of clarity. Uh Um, Or, you know, it's really about being a really good listener and being able to like jump on different wavelengths at different times, which is a skill, you know, and it it doesn't mean you have to understand it so much that you go, you're going to go write a thesis on it, but how can you quickly uptake something to the point where you're like, okay, I'm, I'm following your logic here. But don't know if I fully like know exactly how this reactor comes together. <laughs> but like, but I understand. Not, and if I don't, I pull you out of the detail and get you to like explain it in a way that can bring me along and probably everyone else in the room that were afraid to say anything. Yeah, you know what I think that that so that skill I think is as a great skill for like so many different reasons across the board of so many different disciplines. And I, I happen to know that you're actually pretty good at it because you've, you've caught me unawares many times in, in previous conversations that I really respect where I will say something and then you'll ask me questions about it in a way that I'm like, oh, maybe I don't even know what I'm talking about. And it's really refreshing to have that kind of dance where when people are like, you know, they're, they're genuinely curious with an attitude of respect. And I feel like that's the mm. thing that if you can have the patience for assuming positive intent all the time, as much as possible, you can really find an, out and, and learn a lot more. Even when you like might be completely able to see around the corner by validating it with that type of respect and, and, and your communication, you can, you can yourself learn more than you even knew about what you're thinking about, you know? 100%. And, you know, look, it's important facilitation skill. I think it's a critical leadership skill and you don't even have to even think of yourself as a facilitator or have aspirations to be a full-time facilitator. But as a leader, the more of this kind of stuff that you do and adopt will improve the efficacy of your leadership and the outcomes that your team is creating. Yeah. I once had a peer say something to me that like 
I don't know, just haunted me because what they said, like I instantly believed and then suddenly felt like I, I really had a long way to go in terms of leadership. And they, they, they said, great leaders can work with anyone. And when it really dawned on me what that meant, it was like, oh, man, you know what I mean? Because we all have people that we work with that we, you know, jive with better and some that we jive with less, right? We have, like you said, di different wavelengths. But like, as you want to get better as a leader, you got to be able to have a t full frequency sweep. You got to be able to tune into any frequency and you got to get good at tuning into any frequency so that any sort of misalignment of what you and the other person that you're interacting with are thinking and feeling can be resolved in some way and get get on a page that's healthy that that's healthy and happy for everyone. Yeah, I think also that notion you mentioned a moment ago of assuming positive intent, I think really aligns with that thought pretty well because if there's someone that is more difficult to collaborate with, often it's our own judgment or our own, the, the lens by which we see that person that's impacting our ability to collaborate with them, right? Okay, so it's I, I got it. filters everything. I got a name for you because I'm really worried about this particular person in terms of what the common thought process is. What do you think of Steve Jobs? Mm. You know, I, I've never personally met him, for one thing. I... I found his work to be very driven. He seemed to be very passionate. I've heard a lot of stories that his leadership style was very abrasive. But clearly, people were drawn to him and stuck by him and were empowered by him. So I think he's doing a, I think the memory of Steve Jobs might be doing a disservice to almost all leaders and new leaders. Hmm. Not because, because I know some people that did work with him and they've, I've heard the same thing, abrasive stuff, but I think he might have been successful in spite of that. And there's mm. like this new idea that like, oh, you basically being a real jerk is somehow like leadership. And it's a, it's a mm -hmm. story that's promoted by his iconic power that he did. I mean, he led a very innovative company through a lot of very crazy things. And, I don't know if that's the lesson to take away from Steve Jobs. And I'm curious, like, what do you think is with this balance, right? Because a, a leader needs to be in service, but it also, they do need to be forceful. And so, like, how are you supposed to tell, or how do you tell the difference of when to, when to, you know, ask for input and when to, and when to be like, nope, this is what we're doing. It's, it's, it's where we're going now. Part of it's intuition. But I think the more quantifiable piece is when you have a clearly well-defined set of values and you know a mission has been drafted and adopted by leadership the strategy is in place then that stuff should not be you know if that decision's been made it's very disruptive to the culture and the the, even the success of the company to rehash those things. And so I think anything that's going to make you go backwards on those terms, pretty non-negotiable, you know? And the thing is, is like, yes, we want to be inclusive, but if it's, you know, I, I wrote a blog post recently about this notion of accidental exclusion versus intentional exclusion or exclusive by design. And so often when we create a community 
or a group or a guild, we have a thesis. We have a reason for bringing those people together. We have common interest. We have a shared experience of some sort. And if we're going to bring together people to serve that purpose and to commune with each other around that experience, it would do our group a disservice to invite people who didn't have that experience or that background or that shared whatever it is. And so if we start becoming less exclusive for for the purpose of diversity or inclusion, it waters down the group. It makes the purpose less clear. You let jerks it. in. You, le- you let jerks in. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is, this well, is the thing. Not only jerks, but also it could be lovely, lovely people. But if this is group is for women who have experienced domestic violence, why does a dude need to come to that? That's right. Or if, you know? if like, the- or if, if it turns out that that group is really about domestic uh, support, maybe a dude can come to that. And maybe there's, yeah, you know, like, let's be clear about let's the be purpose, clear what the purpose is. Just, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Mm-hmm. No, so this, is, this is difficult in the new world. Where we get into trouble, though, is with this accidental exclusion. And that's where when we, we got blinders on and we're not thinking about the fact that we're excluding people that would fit our purpose or, you know, our, either our onboarding or our recruiting tactics mean that we're not considering folks that we should be. Yeah. Or we're excluding them. Like maybe there's a there's some sort of quiz or onboarding tooling yeah. that like it's like it's sort of like the the biased AI stuff, right? Or people get, get getting dumped out the side that would be great members, and we're accidentally excluding them. Yeah, I think that's especially the people. Sure, there's plenty of, of people that are just like hateful, mean people that are excluding on purpose, and it's like whatever, just forget those people. Um, but the the <laughs> right. people that are trying to do the good work, we have to be really careful about this accidental exclusion. So, so the, here's the other thing about this, because I've been thinking a lot about this, about, and, and, and the accidental exclusion is not about a binary thing of a person. It's actually about a person's time. Like, it's about their brain time. And what I mean by that is, like, what might be, like, I mean, we can look at very, like, obvious accidental exclusions, right? Like, the person is not here, and, and, and that was for mm-hmm. accident with onboarding. But the new world with people figuring out that they can work from home for certain types of jobs means you're accidentally excluding people by saying you need to be here from nine to five. That's what we learned. Now there's Mm. people who can actually be at a meeting with their video off while they're in the restroom and they can be there to listen to a conversation. There's someone who knows how to have proper mic muting and can actually be participating in a conversation while they're going to pick up their kids in the car. Like there's this new world where for me, like where I see a lot of like opportunity is for us to admit that Everyone who wants to collaborate and do work, if we can get some of this telepresence tooling down, we open up this huge thing where like literally people can be eating dinner, which normally would be considered rude, but they can actually be listening to a, a, pe- a bunch of people discussing something and take that with maybe even the next meeting. Maybe they don't even have to say something, but the fact that they can tune in and hear what people are wanting to discuss and what they're thinking about will help them at the nine o'clock Zoom meeting that they're about to discuss about what they're going to do. So there's also like an accidental like dynamic thing. Like it's not like you're always in or out. You're like, we have waves of being in and out depending on what we're doing with uh, our physical bodies. Yeah, accessibility has changed. And you know, this is something that we talked about in our pre-show chat around you know this moment that we're in right now about how people are shifting you know, back to the office and certainly 
A lot of people were excited about that. Some people were very concerned or weary about that. We've been studying it very closely and are excited about the hybrid guide we're putting out. And, you know, your concern, the one you voiced to me was, uh, you know, are we going to throw out all these learnings or, you know, these observations that maybe people haven't actually converted into learnings, you know, like, um, and I guess from your perspective, what's keeping you up or concerning you the most as far as these learnings that you think might be lost? Yeah. Well, there's, there's the one that I'm the most concerned with because it seems to me that it's that hybrid approach is the obvious way to go down, right? Like we should take the, the best of working at home and the best of working in the physical room. And we should find out how to do, how to get the benefits of both. The thing that I saw was very specific to international teams and clicks. So there would always be a team that would be in a local office and maybe have one, two, four other people working in maybe a different time zone, different location. Um, or maybe even, you know, somebody was just had a sick kid and had to work from home that day. And I just saw that whenever that was the situation, those people were excluded from the conversation. People would just, you know, be normal people. They draw on a whiteboard. They wouldn't invite those people, you know, all all that kind of stuff. And then when the pandemic hit, it was a great equalizer where it's like, it doesn't matter if you're in the Ukraine, Madrid, Austin, uh, New York, like we all have the same restraints now. And so I, I saw it get, especially like international teams or these, these clicks were suddenly like gone. And I'm Mm. really worried about those clicks coming back as people start to, you know, be able to be in the same room when others are not, because it, I think it's going to take some sort of discipline or real value system to make sure that when three people are going to have a discussion, that they let somebody call in to participate in that who may not be physically there. That's fascinating. So like, what, what can we do to ensure that these clicks don't start to, you know, take root again? I don't know. I think there's probably something there with, uh, with tooling. If you have a tool that forces you that you have to use for some other reason, you might be able to apply secondary pressure to allow people to, to be there. So, you know, like if it's like, oh, well, we all take notes in a Google Doc and when Google Docs are open, suddenly anybody who is a part of that Google Doc would be notified to like jump in and see what's going on. Think things like that. I feel like human beings are gonna want to be clicks. Like we like to like make relationships, hang out with comfort, and and it's it's gonna it's gonna take tooling to incentivize that behavior. Mm. So you mentioned also this stuff you're noticing on what's happening in Discord. And so I'm curious to hear a little bit more about this because I agree that while tooling isn't everything, that we're going to see a lot of experimentation over this transition that people are starting to experience. And we're going to see new features and, you know, web chat software and, and all sorts of collaboration tool kind of moves to embrace this, this world that we're going to find where people are connecting in different ways, you know, where, where people are, in, you got five people in a conference room and like 10 other people dialing from their houses. Maybe there's another conference room with three people in it in another country. You know, it's like, there's going to be a weird heterogeneous type of configuration that's going to need to be supported. So anyway, I'm, I'm really curious to see where things grow and how, how things are evolving. So what's this thing you noticed in discord? Yeah. So are you familiar with the idea of like practicing with a heavy baseball? 
right? Like you, you throw yes. a heavy baseball so that when you have a real weighted one, you can you've you've done something harder, right? This exists right now in the porn industry. They don't have a lot of technological support and have to be very cutting edge. And so because they're out all alone, they have to do some really crazy stuff. They have to do it without a lot of community support. And it was always like an inside joke in Silicon Valley that like when you were trying to do something cutting edge, look at how the technology in the porn industry worked first because they probably had greater demands on what they needed to do. The same thing I think is happening right now for the gaming industry. So Discord, which was primarily a gaming tool, needed to be able to do with video at high frame rates, needed to do with audio and high frame rates, a lot of different people coming in, coming out, changing what community they're part of, interacting with Twitch and live stream at, you know, graphics cards running full bore, right? It was designed for the gaming community. And now you look at like our, our telepresence tools in the enterprise market, right? Like I, I love Slack and Microsoft Teams. I, you know, it's okay, but they just, they're, they're not the heavy baseball and discord kind of is it's that bridge of, of what could slack be right and what i found with discord is during the pandemic it kind of felt like it kind of felt like it broadened its scope outside of just the gaming community and it also felt like you were walking around in a in a physical environment like you could jump in here see who's talking there okay throw up your screen okay cut that screen off switch that screen Everybody jumps over here. Now we're having an audio conversation. Meanwhile, let's check on this typing thing that's going on here. I mean, if I want to connect to you in Slack and share something on my screen, it's a chore compared to like how instant it is with that particular tooling system. And so it's not mm. necessarily Discord so much as it is Discord's dedication to making jumping around so easy that just blows my mind. Yeah, it's amazing how you know one application will come along and solve the challenges in a completely new way and just disrupt things. And then everyone has to like, you know, they set the new bar that everyone has to respond to. And I'm really curious, you know, one of the things I'm excited about is let's say that I'm in a zoom meeting or a team's meeting and I got four people in the room with me. Well, you know, how are we going to deal with the fact that this like PTZ camera <laughs> that looks like a security camera, camera view of the meeting it's just not as compelling as having a straight view of our participants and you know webex has already introduced technology that will basically slice up all the participants and zoom in on their faces and then make them appear like individual participants in the meeting so if they're doing it you know other people might might copy that we're but we're behind in this way because I was reading and I actually brought this up uh, on last Space Pencils episode. I was reading this thing from the MIT review that was talking about that the zoom distance that you are from faces is not healthy, perhaps that it brings a lot of cortisol mm. in because the way they were describing it is like the only way that you see people this close up is if you're going to fight or mate, and so we have to like evolve our tools to figure out how you while bringing the closeness also don't use technology to over intensify it right like i found that as a manager i was doing much better at my current job when i started taking more just voice conference as opposed to like full video chat 24 7 because mm. it was just i think from this mit thing i mean i don't know if they're right or not but definitely i felt something different from being nine to five in video meetings to you know half and half video meetings in audio yeah, I agree. I definitely kind of reduced some of my video screen time. And it's it's been a, a game changer for sure. Yeah. So, but with that, I think that what you're bringing up about like, okay, so you have four people in a room and maybe there's two people that aren't. 
I don't know how we solve that because the pandemic like just gave us a cheat code and said, nope, everyone's <laughs> no one's together. No one is together. And so we haven't had this challenge yet of like, okay, we're going to go back to the same problem, but you possibly have learned something. What are you going to do differently? And that's why I'm worried. This is why it keeps me up is because I feel like, oh man, am, am I going to live in a society that l literally just ignored what happened during the pandemic? Because it's such an opportunity to, to evolve. Yeah. I, I'm not so concerned by that because Pandora's box has been opened. People know what's possible. So if you try to shove someone into a virtual, like, let's say, conduit to a, a room where you've got other people that are together, they're going to demand a better experience because they're like, you know, this is not cool. Yeah. And, you know, every company is going to be different culture wise. Some will revert back and, and they're going to suffer because of it. But the thing I'm curious about is how do the software tooling come to the table to allow us to move into that gracefully because i can tell you right now well, the only way to do it is everyone log into their own laptop as if they were home mm -hmm. but what's the version of that so mm -hmm. imagine if you know zoom teams etc had the ability to say you know that you can pin users right imagine that you could say somehow either through ip addresses or geolocation or whatever it would know that I'm in the room with Adam. So I don't need to see Adam's video because I can see him over top of my laptop. Oh, interesting. And so it could change the experience for me as a meeting participant. And then the people at home would see everybody because they're, of course, by themselves. So that could be a, a, an interesting change in the way some, how the, some of the software works. But I think it's like that's just the tip of the iceberg once people really start thinking about this challenge I really like that idea. I mean, I feel like that could be like a whole study, which would be like something about like, um, okay, so if you think of like information about a human, right? So there's your face, there's how you're feeling, there's the sound, right? There's some kind of art that you could just focus on entirely, which is like, like dynamic, I don't know, I'm trying to like make up a new word, I guess, like dynamic human intelligence, where what are you doing? Well, I'm going to be focusing on making sure that for any group of participants, with every accessibility and piece of data that I know about where they are, what their sound environment is, all of it, I'm going to make sure that each one has the missing information that they need in order to have a human to human collaborative mm. like intent. Because there's other parts of that that are already happening that I think are related to what you're saying, which is like, you know, some of these graphics cards now have like really crazy audio filtering, which is really helpful for people who have loud keyboards or in a slightly noisy environment. I think that's also in line with this. It's not just like knowing how to turn off your camera or, you know, your Douglas's camera because you're, you're in front of me. It's also like, well, what other distractions are preventing like a dynamic, uh, diverse group of people from talking? Because like as Sandra's at the, in the car, like her not being able to be in the conversation because of like not having good noise suppression, that's also a part of this, right? Yes. You know, and like, it's the classic problem of like, you know, string a bunch of microphones in the conference room and just assume people are going to be able to hear and, and, you know, and then you're on the other end of that and it's just God awful. So, you know, I think there's going to be a lot to your point around what information is missing, recognizing that, and then making sure it's supplied in a way that's most effective and most helpful to, you know, to fill in those gaps. And ultimately our goal is to make sure everyone has a multi-sensory experience. Yeah.
Yeah, I mean, can, I, I could actually imagine a world in the future where rather than like, uh, I know we've had discussions about equipment and it's it can be something you kind of nerd out too much on, but I could see a future where people are having standardized for certain enterprise development, like telepresence kits. It's like, you mm. have to use this mic, you have to use these headphones, you have to have this camera, because we want to make sure that that is not the reason why you guys are not collaborating right. You know what I mean? And I feel like the two things that really help a, a, a group actually be diverse are being heard. And that's why I'm I'm really obsessed with audio more than I am about video nowadays, because it, so, it sounds metaphorical, but like literally with across all of these different groups of people hearing what someone has to say is is so important and it's and it starts with our voice for now so i think that's a great point to end on and i'd like to invite you to share a final thought with our listeners sure i think the pandemic was terrible and i think that terrible things can teach you and this really is one of those things that if you haven't yet wherever you are, reflect on what you learned and do not forget it because it's really easy for humans to just get into like a new zone of things. But we had a really terrible thing teach us some really great things. And if we're, if we're doing that in terms of leadership all across the board, not trying to go back to normal, there is no normal. Okay. There was a normal, then things got weird. Now things are a different normal. And the more that you can participate in creating that new normal wherever you are in your particular role, the more that everything can be a lot better for everyone. That's that's kind of my final thought on that. Awesome. Thank you for sharing, Sparks. And want to just say it was a pleasure chatting with you today. And if there's another opportunity, then I'm always going to welcome it and hope you enjoy your day. And thanks so much for joining. Thanks so much for having me, Douglas. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. And if you want more, head over to our blog, where I post weekly articles and resources about working better together. VoltageControl.com